Grab your popcorn and silence those cell phones because the show is about to start. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick Blaine is an award-winning film critic featured on thebigscreen.net.org and has been highlighted on over 75 unreleased independent film posters in less than 12 different countries. Nick Brown. He's been the high school projectionist for the AV Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Oh, you want me to go now? Okay, fine. Whenever you're ready. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is back. And no Rick, no Nick, but the stunt doubles are on patrol. Boy, that's digging back a little bit into our past episodes, talking stunt doubles. I'm Cliff Booth. And I'm Rick Dalton. (laughs) I used to be on television. (laughs) Clearly, we've seen some Tarantino movies here as of late. Yeah, yeah, we have. That was... That was one I couldn't pass up on buying. That just yeah, that I got whole, it. the whole vibe of that movie was was so entertaining. I know we've talked about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood before, but maybe we are a little bit here to start this show because we're looking ahead to the Oscars on Sunday. Can you believe it? No, this is going to be an interesting one. I'm sure we'll have some more to talk about next podcast. Oscars will be dealt out, surprises, snubs, you name it. Yeah, should be a fun one. We'll we'll discuss that coming up here in a moment. But it is indeed Rick and Nick talk flicks uh, with myself, Joel Hoover, Dave Brooks, and we're sponsored by the Bemidji Theater, located on Highway Two. We're recording this on a Tuesday. Tuesdays are a great day to go to the Bemidji Theater. Five dollar movie night. Some great deals at the concession stands as well. It's a great time to go catch a movie there. Although you have to make sure you come early because yeah. the crowds are always busy on Tuesdays. It's just a great place to go in general to catch what's currently at the movies. The Bemidji Theater, located on Highway 2. Don't forget, they've got a new thing they've added now. $6 student nights on Thursdays. Have you heard about this one now? No, that is a new one. All students of any age, even if you're a you know a, a school of life grad going back to college and you're 50, but you're going to school somewhere, bring your ID and you get $6 tickets for everything. And it's uh, any, any school. you got a student ID, bring it, you're in and you're going. Excellent. Six dollars on Thursdays for all students. They got a good deal College, for college, high school, uh, yep, all of the above. Okay, yep, yeah, bring them. So, stand, traditional student or non so traditional student doesn't matter. Bring your bring your current valid ID Thursday nights. Six dollar tickets. I mean, between Tuesdays and Thursdays, you got a great opportunity to go see some movies, and uh, they've also got a pretty good deal with the popcorn as well. Uh, if you get their Star Rewards membership, the little card thing, you get points and all that, you get a bucket of popcorn for a nice big discount on that, too, as long as you sign up for Star's Rewards. Excellent. I've got my pocket and my card in my pocket. Yeah, I've seen them promoting that at the theater here for a little while now. It's a great little perk to have, especially if you go as frequently as you and I like to go. Yeah, I was just there Saturday night. What did you see? Oh, I saw Star Wars again. My uh, my, okay. my movie date was like, we're going to see Star Wars. I want to pick up all the nuances. I was going bad boys. He was going, nope, Star Wars. Okay. 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 You and I, Dave, have now both been to see 1917 as we are getting yeah. ready for Oscar Sunday. And I'm glad that we can both talk about it now because I think last time we had we had talked here on the podcast, you had been to see it. I had not gotten a chance to go yet. I've been to see it twice now since Ooh, then. Okay. Um, I had a I had a friend who I re- who I was like, "Hey, you ought to check this movie out. I think you're really going to like it." So he and I got to go see it then on Friday. Um, it is a pretty remarkable movie from a technical standpoint. It, just the cinematography. From all standpoints, it's yeah, a from, great movie. from all standpoints, absolutely. 
But especially from the cinematography standpoint, I mean, Roger Deakins is going to win, uh, has won, and will continue to win a ton of awards for this movie. Um, I think it's going to culminate in, in an Oscar as well for, for the movie, just from the technical standpoint. And it may very well win Best Picture. The steam yeah, has really been could. growing on this movie ever since it won big at the Golden Globes the other week. You know, you get some movies that win Best Picture and people kind of forget about them. And they might, I mean, who won last year? Wasn't it uh, the, the Green Book? Was that last year? Yes. So, I mean, I, 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 some people, people aren't talking about it anymore. You know, the movie's kind of come and gone. This is one of those movies where, should it win Best Picture, I think most people will probably, yeah, that was very deserving of Best Picture. Oh, that was a great movie. Rather than, this is just a movie that happened to come along at this point and happened to be the best of a eh, bunch of movies and it won Best Picture, move on to the next one. You know, this seems to be one of those benchmark movies. And who talks about cinematography of a casual fan nature, but they are about this movie, and that says something about it. Not only is it a good movie, really well done, but it's just beautifully done. It's, how did they do it? Yeah, it's beautifully shot. That The how of how they accomplished it is is part of the, I, I think, what's going to live with this movie, the lore of this movie. And yet, at the same time, it is still a very personal movie, Dave. Yeah. This is a very personal look at, at war when you are constantly moving with the characters like like this movie does. There, There is literally no fluff with no. this. There, There's nothing extra that comes with this movie in terms of the emotional standpoint or the way that war is approached it's it, it takes it it takes you right onto ground zero and and when you take it into a war like world war one with all the horrors that came with that war and trench warfare it really does get up in your face in in a way that is pretty jarring when you take it in at times mesmerizing throughout the movie and yet at other times just that that downright stun you when you consider the gravity of a war like that and just war in general on a personal level the way that this movie brings you into it um with that continuous shot yeah and it's the i mean again we're going to go back to this because this is what this movie will probably most be remembered for is how do they do that it looks like they shot the whole movie in one shot more or less and they didn't, but it's made to look like they did. You can, I think, already the the secrets behind the tricks are already on YouTube. You can go and look up how do they do that, you know? Right. But it's, it's if you know enough about movies, you can kind of figure it out. But even still, they really paid great attention to that, and that's on Roger Deakins. That's on Sam Mendes, the director. That was a fantastic movie, top to bottom, stem to stern, and so beautifully done, particularly with the horrors of war. When you consider, too, some of the story behind what made this movie happen, and you consider that Sam Mendes was inspired by stories from his family. of His grandfather, yeah. yeah. His it's grandfather even, even says and, at the end of the movie. Yes, who, who told the stories. I mean, this is, this is one of those things where th- this could be one of those stories that, that you hear from somebody who has been through a war like that, and this is one of the tales that they tell and even within the movie itself you know the one of the characters is a storyteller you know within just that that whole concept as well of just telling the stories from from a time and place that that's maybe hard to tell stories from you know let's tell one other thing about this movie that stands out since we're looking at best picture potential by the time people are listening to this may have won best picture as far as we know it's basically a cast of unknowns 
And the biggest names that are in it are cameos at best. They are. They show up and then they're gone. That's it. You don't see them again. You know, Steve, you know, all these guys that pop in and out and they're gone. And so this movie is carried by two people that, for all intents and purposes, I miss that like you've never seen them in things before, Sherlock or whatever, but you don't really know them. And a lot of people don't know them. I've not seen really any of their work that stood out to me at all. So I don't know who these guys are, but this movie was absolutely captivating. There were three guys who stood out in in the movie who I recognized, and they were off the start. Colin Firth. Mm-hmm. Colin Firth was the first one. Then Mark Strong. And when he when he showed up, I was like, "Hey, that's Lord Blackwood yeah. from from Sherlock Holmes." But no more than two minutes, you know, for per screen time, and that's it. Yep. And then Benedict Cumberbatch yeah. at the end. So and and that was it. But again, like you said, very brief. It's it's all about mostly two central characters and and the journey that they go through. With the exception of Mark Mark Strong, they did use you know Cumberbatch and Firth to. Kind of in a lot of the you know the trailers and marketing and stuff. So here's his voice and there's his face. Oh, th- this guy's in it. Yeah, but barely. You know they made the trailers, but that's it. They're two minutes, if that, and they're gone. And they are bookends characters within the yeah. course of the story. One at the beginning and one at the end. Mark Strong well. in the in about the middle. Yep. And it's blink and you miss it more or less, and then they're gone. But it's two relatively speaking unknowns, more or less that carry this movie and they really make it work and so beautifully done, so intimate, and at the same time you almost feel like you're lost in the sea. Dave, I'm a little bit more intrigued about the Oscars this year than last year because I think there's a little bit more broader appeal in some of the movies that are up for Best Picture, that are up for some of the awards. Is that kind of how you're feeling this year about it? You know, 1917 stands out in a lot of ways for me. But, I mean, one of the things, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, the 2010s in general, there have been some great movies, don't get me wrong, but a lot of movies to me were ho-hum movies with great performances in them. And that is not a full package to me. You know, it's a great performance in an otherwise forgettable movie. If they had less of an actor in this part, um, the movie would be worth a lot less. You know, I mean, overall, a lot less. I may not even want to go see it necessarily. I'll catch it if I catch it. You know, I, and I'll say something controversial here: Joker, okay movie, not not great, but a great performance. That's how a lot of people felt about it, though. Yeah, so it's one of those things where show me the value once you've seen the performance. I mean, look at let's take the same character done differently. You've got Heath Ledger who stands out in The Dark Knight, but even if you had a different actor in there, let's just say. You're still going to have a great performance, sub sub ledger performance, let's call it, but still are surrounded by a great movie and a great story and the middle part of a whole trilogy that's bigger than that and it's Batman and all. It works. It works even if Heath Ledger was not cast in that role. But with Joker, you know, Joaquin Phoenix does a great job, but the movie the movie itself has a hard time standing on its own. It's uber violent for one. You've got great people that show up in that movie. De Niro for for all things. He would have been an interesting choice for the Joker too, but um, it, it just you know, it, and I think a lot of movies are like that. They're they're okay movies, nothing great, nothing bad, just kind of eh, but great performances. Yeah, and those are the ones I think that have kind of well, this was the, what we had this year for a crop. One of them is going to be the best of the bunch. That's best picture. But are they going to stand up compared to what has come before? And I would argue what's going to come later of best pictures. Will we look at the 2010s? As a little bit of a lull, and I'm not knocking the movies that have come out, but something is kind of missing, says I. Let's start talking about the 2010s then, since we've kind of bridged the gap between Sorry. this year's Best Picture. 
Dave, that was an excellent segue. I don't think you have anything to be sorry about there. But let's start talking about the the decade in movies. Then I know a lot of people. It was it was pretty in vogue to do that back in December and to, to really look back because it was still 2019. Um, you and I, we didn't have the time to be able to put that together then. Plus, sometimes you know, having a little bit of time away from uh, away from the crowd, maybe it gives a little bit of a different perspective on talking about it now that we're into a new decade and reflecting back on the one that came before it struck me though dave when i thought back to where i was in 2010 did you think about that a little bit too when considering on a personal note you mean yeah oh oh, yeah when considering watching movies back in 2010 i was starting to really get into watching movies more at the theater because in 2010 i was I was uh, a junior in college, uh, sorry, a junior in high school, becoming a senior in high school. I was driving more. I had more opportunity to go around, go Your places. Your world's expanding. Yeah, so my brothers and I, and my sister would come sometimes too, depending on the movie, we would go to the movies. And we would go with friends, and we, we loved going to the movies. And when I would come back from college, we'd go to the movies. And it gave me a chance to go a little bit more. I remember the summer... That summer of 2010, seeing a movie that was coming out that I was really intrigued by because its director had just done a huge superhero movie, had done a big-time magic movie as well, and I was very intrigued by this guy's work, and I wanted to see what this whole idea behind this new mind-bending, time-bending kind of movie called Inception was all about. And yet we, my family had gone on a trip to Alaska during the time where Inception was in theaters, so I never got to see it in theaters. Oh. I asked for it sight unseen for Christmas, and I got it then, and remembered watching it, and I was mesmerized. I was like, wow, what a great movie. I'm so glad that I asked for this without even ever seeing it, and I got yeah. it for Christmas, and then watched it, and I was like, oh, man, I'm really bummed I missed this now in theaters. But when you think back to that time, you know, I've, my movie um, palette was expanding. And it would just go, continue to expand throughout the course of the decade while I while I would be watching movies that had come before. I was now going off to college, you know, taking in the, the movie library that was there, watching movies with my free time. I was starting to expand my scope of what was going on with the movies, including with what was current. Yeah. In a weird way, my watching of movies has decreased over the year, over the decade, because the 2010 start, I was a single guy. I mean, I might have had girlfriends or whatever, but since then, I'm married, and I've got a kiddo, and that changes things, but it also means you have to pick your battles when it comes to movies. On any given summer, there may be you know 10 movies I want to see. I might see five or less. You know, you kind of pick your battles, you know, and if you're going to, if my wife wants to see it too, that's harder because then we both going to go see it. Then you got to get a babysitter and this and that. If it's one that I want to see and she doesn't really care to see, no problem. But she's a movie fan too. So why won't, you're not going without me. I want to see that movie too. So what's cool is that's opened the door for you to be able to share movie experiences with your son. Yeah. And that's, you know, that was one big moment for 2010, the 2010s. Uh, this last year, 2019, we went and saw his first movie in the theater, and it was a great movie. It was a good animated movie, and it was one that he just loved. And I was sitting back in the chair, and he's sitting on the front of the chair, so I could see him silhouetted by the movie screen. And I'm holding the popcorn, and he just keeps reaching over, and and he's just mesmerized. He didn't want to talk. He just wanted to watch. 
and he loved it. And I remember at some point my dad and I were probably in those very same roles. So that was kind of a fun passing of the torch, and we've seen a few more since. He really likes the Toy Story movies, and we'll go more. And as he gets older, it'll be fun to show him some of those movies that from yesteryear. Plus, you've had the Star Wars experience now with him he as has well. Seen, he has seen the original Star Wars and yep. loved it. Yep. So, of course, he watched that at the house, but, you know, on the surround sound, and he just stood there. He didn't even sit for it. He stood and just, uh, mouth open, and that's fun to pass that on. It's funny that we talked about 2010 itself. It was a great year for movies. When I when I reflect back on that year and look at the movies there, we had a touchstone movie of our generation kind of moment yeah. there in the in 2010 with the coming of the social network. And before we even started doing this podcast, Dave, you said something that has been on my mind a lot when it comes to that movie and what when did I, I watch what, it back. How did I offend? No, it, it was perfect. It, it was what you said. It was so very predictive too yeah. of what was to come, and yet it was telling about something that had happened in the past, and yet it was telling about what was to come with a lot of what Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg have dealt with of upheaval in this past decade with Facebook's rise, and then all of the questions that came with it then too, with some of the privacy problems and going to court once again. Mark Zuckerberg's been in court a lot, whether it was about the original um, creation of the Facebook as it then became Facebook, which is, of course, detailed a bit in the movie. And yet the movie itself is just it's pretty remarkable with with the way that that whole thing was put together um, and the way that the story was told and the way that it really does tell a story of our time for for all the the good in terms of the creativity and yet the bad in terms of jealousy and in terms of addiction, misleading, misleading and, yeah. and and just the, the vices of our generation as well. You see them all on, on full display within that movie um, and, and the influences as well that come with it and just trying to be cool and, and the cost of, of such a thing as well. Um, it, it all is depicted within that movie. The movie had as well one of the great movie trailers ever created too. Um all that came with it. It was it was just a, it, it started the decade with a bang. Yeah, it's funny that it, it really tells a story of how it happened, but it really predicted where we were going. It came out in 2010, and it came out of the front end of the decade, and even now in 2020, I still say social network, or the, yeah, the social network is going to be, if not for sure, but a good strong contender to be the movie of the decade just because of what it really signified. I mean, I, there's movies that you could argue were better than The Social Network, but nothing spoke to where we are now more, I think, than The Social Network. And it came out at the front end of it. And everything that you said, I would echo that. It's just It was incredible the way that that worked out. And that's maybe one of the better ways to talk about where we're going looking back rather than just let's pull out a movie, let's pull out a movie, here's another movie. But that ties into something else where – the social network spoke about the now in a lot of ways, and it spoke about the society and the culture of the now, and even still in 2020, the social network is just as relevant, if not more so, than it was. Because it was almost kind of still crawling out from under a rock in a lot of ways by the end of the 2000s and into the 2010s, and it's evolved dramatically since then. Um, but now we're starting to feel the the backlash of social media in a way that we never have before. Right. So interesting about that. But even more so into the 2010s, 
things that dealt with you know history lessons or biopics. We had a lot of those that really were popular in a in a large way. Whether it was rock opera, uh, rock biopics, Bohemian Rhapsody, and Rocket Man, both were good. Um, history lessons about things that were relatively current, like Zero Dark Thirty. Yes. Almost, I mean, and, and Osama bin Laden, I think it was 2011, right, that he got killed finally? I think it was. And uh, that was something where, I think it was, I can't remember. And uh, almost immediately after the thing happened, they were working on doing a different version of what became Zero Dark Thirty, where we got where he got away in the Tora Bora Mountains. And May, then we, May of 2011. Okay, May 2011, so yep. we got it. And then you have, uh, they caught him. So they had to change the whole movie just before they were ready to film it. And they changed it completely. Zero Dark Thirty is almost a blow-by-blow, almost documentary style of how it happened. And evidently, very, very accurate. Do you think that that there was maybe too much of a trend to have a quick turnaround on depicting history during the 2010s? Because I looked uh, when I thought about Zero Dark Thirty, I was like, this is such a fast turnaround on on some of the themes especially toward the back end of that movie there were some that i think were a little bit more 2000s oriented when it came to the war on terror but i i was kind of thinking to myself boy this is this is a fast fast turnaround on this piece of history in a way but most of that movie takes place in the 2000s you know the movie came out zero dark 30 came out in 2014 i think and they got him in 2011 and as soon as they got him, it was almost done, rubber stamped. I mean, nobody saw a body. He was he was buried at sea within like 15 minutes after they got him, more or less. But most of that movie takes place from the September 11th attacks of 2001 through 2011. And so it's almost, this is a recap of what had happened in the last decade, mashed down into long two and a half movie. A span. Yeah, but it's yep. almost a Cliff Notes version, but it also gets deep in some places. Some things are mixed together just for, you know, narrative sake, but it is apparently to the point where Congress had to look into this a little bit. Well, how much top secret information did they get? Yeah. So, I yep. mean, there wasn't it didn't go so far as on the hill hearings, but they did do a little digging. Well, how did they find this out, you know? So it was it's that accurate. Will the I would tw- show it in school as a as a history lesson. It's that kind of movie. Yeah, although very graphic. Though, yeah, yeah, too. yeah. But if you're gonna if you get around to history at some point in school, how can we show what happened in September 11th? Because I think that event changed the world going forward, and it's it, we're never gonna look back. That's one of those turning points. So how do you explain that? Well, we can sum it up in a two and a half hour movie. Get your parents to sign this permission slip, kids, because this is very graphic but very accurate. You and I have asked this question many times on this podcast um, in various forms. When we reflect on the decade, though, are we going to look back on the 2010s as the high watermark for superhero movies? Because think about when 2010 launched. We were just getting into the MCU. Iron Man had been released in 2008. Alongside of that, The Dark Knight came out that same year. Um, we The MCU was just in its infancy, and then it took off. At, with a, a with a speed of light to borrow um, another superhero from back uh, from DC, uh, it just absolutely took off. Then DC needed to respond, and they tried to respond then in their own way. I mean, the glut of superhero movies in the two, in the 2010s it drove the box office. Look at the domestic box office, and and you've got the number two, the number three, the number four, the number six. 
those movies out of the top ten, they are they are superhero movies yeah. as far as domestic box office. And yet the question remains: It was this a high watermark decade for it? We're not going to know for quite some time. You and I have spe- have speculated on that and wondered if that might be. Superhero movies drove the decade in a huge, huge way, for better or for worse. Yeah, the verdict is not. I mean, the verdict is in on some things and not in on other things. You know, are, is it a high water point for for hero movies? Duh. Yeah, you don't get to what we've had without that being the case. But is this a bubble that is bursting now? We've talked about that a little bit before too. Now you got Black Widow coming out, and they're going to kind of reboot things. And Disney Plus has got a lot of new series. They're going to be going. We'll get that question answered as we go forward. Loki just started filming, and we got one clip of it. in yeah. that Super Bowl. Ad. Yeah, <laughs> so it, I mean, it's, it's just getting started, and it's going to be interesting to see how much it will be sustained. But if you go back to the '60s, westerns were the thing. Westerns are not the thing anymore. And you could say in the 70s they kind of waned out and they've never really come back. That's not to say there are no good Westerns since then. Got to give a shout-out to Young Guns. My brother would get all mad. That's his favorite Western, and I think we skipped that one when we did the Westerns episode. Um, regulators! Regulators! Now he's happy. So there's there's a moment where things are their thing, and then they go away. This is most definitely going to be, you're looking at the top couple movies of any one of the years of this past decade, you're going to have one of those MCU movies in particular. But it's funny that, you know, comic book movies died out in the 90s. They tried them and they didn't really work to an extent. You had Batman with, you know, Michael Keaton and Batman Returns, and then you had Val Kilmer, then you had George Clooney, and Batman and Robin darn near killed not just Batman, but the whole genre. Ten years later, Christopher Nolan really brings it back with Batman Begins in 2005. Yep. And it just flared up, and then you got the MCU starting, and voila, you get the 2010s, and it worked. It gets forgotten, but let's not forget the X-Men and how important they were in the early 2000s for hitting a specific audience who really appreciated those movies. Yeah, true. and, And those comics. And they had kind of a bridging of the gap that they provided, and then they even had a revival late in the 2000s with X-Men First Class and with the way that that really helped rejuvenate that series. Wolverine had kind of been helping to do that prior to that. Then then First Class took over. Then we got um, then we got Days of Future Past, which was an excellent movie uh, here in the past decade as well. But they were kind of in between, and then came the steam of the MCU, and, that, and, and it just took off then from there. I think there's another thing you need to look at, though, and that's stewardship. You have those that are in charge of what's being done. So you talk about the X-Men. Let's call it the first class cast where you get James McAvoy and you get you know Fassbender. They did with X-Men first class in the late 2000s, and it was a great movie. 2011, actually. Yeah. So yeah. it was this past decade. Yeah. Uh, Days of Futures Past is going to be looked at as probably the high, the high point there. Then they started to drop off enough to the point that when Dark Phoenix came out, it landed with a whimper. People didn't see it. The movie bombed. People didn't care. Well, how come? Well, you're, if you had a good movie and a good idea and good execution, people are going to go see that movie, let's hope. But it didn't happen. And so you have the Dark Knight trilogy just was amazing. Batman Returns with Ben Affleck and you know Batman versus Superman, the ultimate team-up movie, and eh, it just didn't work. Not because it couldn't work, but because it just was set up not to work. And it, in you could make the arguments of what the arguments are. Well, that's not really Superman as a betrayal of his character, and he's not that dark, and blah, blah, blah. 
But that talks to the stewardship. Now look at the MCU. You have not just guys um, like Kevin Feige who are really in charge of overall, but even John Favreau, who's now going into the Star Wars. Heck, even Feige's going into Star Wars now. But clearly, there was a plan. There was a good plan. Let's tell a good story. It's important that they connect, but they can't be about the connection. It needs to be about these individual guys. And by the way, you have more of a passing resemblance to Captain America. Just going to say, you and Chris Evans. Wow. Now, if you bearded yourself, you'd look like modern Chris <laughs> Evans. But um, anyway. You were watching that Super Bowl commercial too closely with him in it. The Boston one? Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. Either that or Knives Out. <laughs> it can't park here. <laughs> Uh, so you got it's a real example as to who's got a property, who's going to put it out just to put it out, who's like, eh, we'll be okay, and who's really crafting something. The MCU is the furniture equivalent of handcrafted mahogany Amish oak. But then when you you've got some DC movies that did work, take Wonder Woman for instance. Oh, yeah. Wonder Woman was able to really nail it as far as putting together a good plan on a movie and and giving in this particular case a strong female character something that that people that fans were going to really enjoy and appreciate. And it was an excellent movie. I then, agree. As a result, and now they're they're building toward a sequel there, which is going to be coming out here this year. But, but you also had an offshoot character, one of the also-ran, so to speak, popular in his own right, but not to the level of Superman and Batman. We had Aquaman, and that yes. movie worked. But then you get the team-up Justice League, you get uh, the bad guy Suicide Squad, and why wouldn't those work? Well, because it was more about visual than substance. It was all frosting, no cake. You know, it just didn't work. It doesn't hold up. It was it was putting up a cardboard standout that'll blow over in the wind, and it just it didn't work. And a lot of that goes on Zack Snyder. He's been in charge of a lot of those that did not work. And well, why is that? Well, that's a great question, and that's a debate for another day that you know can probably delve deep more or less to his credit or detriment. But, you know, to sum it up, boy, the 2010s was was a, a year for comic or a decade for comic books. How much of that is going to leak into the 2020s? I mean, some of it is. You got some coming out this year. How will they do? How will it propel things? Or will it say, yeah, maybe it's time we move on to the next thing, whatever that turns out to be? Or maybe if, as long as you do it well, you could do this forever and capture that lightning in a bottle for all time. Maybe that remains to be seen. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater as we continue to reflect back on the 2010s with this particular episode of the podcast. Dave, the 2010s as a decade, they were a big it was a big decade for harnessing the great potential of visuals yeah. at the movies and utilizing not only good camera work and advancement in camera work, but also to utilize CGI properly as well. Think about the beginning of the decade. We had Inception, which we talked about earlier. Absolutely remarkable visual movie. And yet one that told a great story yeah. within it that was very compelling, that, that used that used good work good use of stunts within it as well to go with the the mesmerizing visuals that we had. And then you get other movies that learned how to take CGI and use them to their absolute fullest potential. You had ones that used it wrong, looking at you, The Hobbit. <laughs> then you've got ones that used it right, like the Planet of the Apes movies, yeah. which I think I think those movies are a very underrated trilogy from this past decade. Amazing, amazing use of CGI in those movies. 
Um, the middle one in particular, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, I, I think that was the best of the three, um, although they were all excellent. But the CGI is absolutely remarkable. I mean, the work that Andy Serkis did in those movies, m- many felt should have been rewarded um, with, with some more awards with the work that he had done there. There's talk about him getting a career achievement Oscar. And I would say from Gollum to King Kong to Caesar the Ape, right? Caesar, yep. I mean, and then some. I mean, I think he's absolutely worthy of it. He has almost single-handedly been the focal point of what has pushed that forward when you start with characters like Jar Jar Binks who look out of phase and the way that he made it move. And, I mean, the computer technology, too, but you have to work with it. And, boy, does he made it work. You talking about that reminded me of, I think, what the Gateway film was into this decade being what it was visually. And that was a movie that came in 2009 in Avatar, which was a visually remarkable movie. And I think bridge the gap for what do we... What do we do with all of this technology that we have as far as CGI, as far as how we visually make a film? How do we make that all the better now in this decade? And even how do we shoot maybe better than ever when it comes to stunts, when it comes to the live action portions that we use as well? For instance, Mission Impossible, which I think got a, a real revitalization this past decade by taking stunt and visual filming and putting it onto another level of excellence with the way that they were able to shoot that. And a lot of that is not CGI at all. A lot of it's, you know, old style, old school, in camera, practical effects. That's really Tom Cruise hanging on the top of a building. That's not CGI about how high up he is. He's literally on the top of the building. That is Tom Cruise hanging off of a plane as it is taking off. That's not faked. You know, in fact, you got the footage of him jumping from one rooftop to another and he broke his leg or whatever he did. That was for real. And they, that's the shot of the movie, actually, where he hurt himself. And that's that's something really awesome about that. But the way that it was done, all of it, you know, going back to Inception, which I think is going to be one of the better movies of the 2010s, think about how bizarre that movie is and its concept. At the end of the movie, it's a dream within a dream within a dream within a dream. And with all that CGI... The way that they're masterfully doing it, you can tell when they skip from one level of the dream to the next where they are. and what. I mean, that's skill. That is dramatic skill to be able to pull that off and to have things jump around. I'll give you a parallel. Hunt for Red October, they built only one submarine set, and they lit it differently. So you could tell whether it was the Soviet sub or the American sub, but it was the same set, just lit differently. And that's how you could tell it apart from one to the other rather than the uniforms. How do you do a dream within a dream within a dream within a dream? And all these CGIs and cities bending and blah, blah, blah. They could make that work. And so see, and that's to my point that CGI is a tool. And if you use it like a tool and you use it properly, when a hammer is required, you use a hammer. Which we've but, talked about. But rather than just throw the tool, but the whole toolbox at the screen like can happen, I'm looking at Batman versus Superman, it takes you out of it because it's like you're watching a comic book. When the physics no longer apply, even if you're talking about superhero strength people where people can't fly, yeah, but that's Superman. We all know that. But make it look convincing. Not like a video game, not like an MTV video, not that that means anything in 2020, but at one point that had you know meaning to it. That Isn't just, it disappointing that that doesn't mean anything in 2020? Here I'm wearing my shirt from Tron, Flynn's Arcade. <laughs> so I can, I can date myself, no problem. I'll give you an example. The movie Tron, not a great movie, 
visually, it's just an amazing movie to watch. And musically. And musically. And it captures the early 80s. Absolutely. The movie itself, eh. I mean, I'm, I've got computer programmer friends that probably that's, they just love Tron. But overall, eh, it was something to see, not to really dive into the nuance beyond the visuals. So that's an example of, you know, frosting no cake. But it, for what it was in 1982 or whatever, oh, yeah, that's absolutely noteworthy. I think cinematography and the way films are being shot has become more important than ever. And we're getting, I, I, I think we're, speaking of bridging the gap, I think we're getting ready to talk about another big topic from the decade here in a moment when it comes to movie going. But utilizing these things well makes going to the movies all the more spectacular if it is a spectacularly shot movie. Like, for me, going to see Dunkirk in theaters was something that was much different than watching Dunkirk at home. You know, even with watching it with my family, you know, when it came to the sound of that movie, it was so different to watch it on TV at home, on the TV at home than to say, hey, you know, I went and saw this in theaters, and it was an incredible movie-going experience of the way that that movie was shot with you know the lie the the actual um the actual plane that they used and the the live and real sense of of how many people they had there on the beach with with all the the live actors that they had there not just using CGI to depict that but having a whole troop of people on a beach like that it just grabs you visually differently and it makes going to the theater that much more of an impactful experience when you are either shooting it well, like what we talked about with 1917, or if you are using CGI well and using it the way that really it was meant to be used, which is not over the top, but as a tool. It's Think about it like this. Going to a theater, theaters are designed to not only be a, bank, a blank slate, but to really bring it. And so just to give it a number, if there's 10 things, let's say, that are required for true experience and to enjoy in a movie... To watch it in the theater, you get the 10 out of 10. To not watch it in the theater, even at best, if you got the surround sound and the light and the screen is big and the lights are off, you're going to get a 9 out of 10. Even in the best home theater, it's just not the same. I mean, unless you're going to, for real, plunk down and build a movie theater in your house, which some people do, but no one I know. Uh, then you, you know, 9 out of 10 ain't bad, but 10 out of 10 is better. And yeah. you just you just miss something, especially if you're just consuming things on a little screen while you're being at a layover in an airport. There's nothing wrong with that. But don't say, oh, I saw Inception. Where? Oh, in Terminal C waiting for my plane. No, you didn't see Inception. No. You, know, you missed a lot. That's 4 out of 10 at best. But that is part of what the movie industry is yeah. facing, Dave. And you and I have talked about that a great deal on this podcast. And it was a huge part of the end of this past decade, streaming and the prevalence of movies being streamable yeah. now. through I mean, we've got a Best Picture nominee in The Irishman enough that, was, to the, that was on Netflix. Enough to the point, we've got the legitimate debate, well, that's not really a movie. Well, why? I mean, what? now we have to actually define what makes a movie. You know, Spielberg is on one side of that, and a lot of other people are on the other side of the met. How do you define a movie? I mean, who would have thought in 2020 we were going to actually have to come up? No, you, that's a great movie, but it's not up for Oscars. So it's not really a movie. What? What? What are you talking about? How do you define a movie? Does it have to be on the big screen to be a movie? And if that's not the case anymore, then does that mean that we can retcon? Kind of like the planet Pluto. For all my life, that was the ninth planet. Nope, not a planet anymore. 
you know, so does that mean that some of those NBC movie of the week, TV movies? Right. Can those officially be movies now? You know, how do you define a movie? Is it the length? Is it the scope? Is it the scale? How do you define a movie? And streaming, just not only in the way it delivers, but it starts to bring that to question, how do you define what is a movie? Doesn't it feel like it's becoming a question of length that is a feature film? Now, rather than a movie that you go see in the theaters, if it is a of a one and a half to two hour kind of length or longer, now it would be considered a movie. But would you consider if you're watching your favorite TV series and when Sweeps Week comes up, it's a two-part cliffhanger episode, well, maybe that first time they air it, they'll air a special two-hour episode where later it's broadcast into two parts. Would that mean that one or a few episodes of your favorite show actually have movies built into them. Game How of Thrones final it? season, each episode was practically a movie when it came to length, if that's kind of the definition that we go by. Yeah, it it all gets kind of thrown into flux because of the change of, of the coming of streaming movies. And yet, there's good and bad because many movies have gotten an opportunity through something like Netflix, through something like Amazon Prime, that wouldn't maybe otherwise get an opportunity through a major movie-making company. That's the irony of it, you know? Because they're getting this chance through this platform, and yet it's a limited platform that does not give it that big screen that big screen touch. I kind of feel like with streaming, we're in the Wild West right now. Uh, let's go to The Irishman. Good movie. I'm not going to say great movie. Very good movie. I mean, it's it's Martin Scorsese and De Niro and Pacino. I even got Joe Pesci back. But it's three and a half hours long. I'm sorry. I mean, I'm sure they said, we, we're going to get this dream team assembled to make a movie for Netflix for us? You can do whatever you want. And they did. You gotta you gotta have a little editing work here, Marty. You gotta go back to the drawing board. But they're not gonna say that to Martin Scorsese. They're just so thrilled to get a Martin he Scorsese movie. He got a blank movie. canvas. He got a blank canvas. You do what you want, and you got a good movie that's three and a half hours long. I I saw that show, and it was a good show. But my God, it, look, you're even calling it a show. It you was know? it was. Way, I mean, I can call anything a show. I don't mean like I don't mean it like that. It's a good movie, yeah. and it is, and it is a movie. But three and a half hours long, come on, man, you got to help me out here. And not only that, the pacing of the movie is non-existent because it's 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 three and a half hours long. Pacing is making things move from one thing to the next. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood does not have much for pacing. It's not about the story. It's about the characters. And, and that, the setting. And the setting. And that's what the movie is. you know. And if that's not your time, if you didn't grow up back then, then that's one big component you miss. So it's not about what happens, it's about what they're doing. It's almost like a Seinfeld episode. What did you do today? Well, I got up and drove to the, that's a show. You know, that's kind of what that was. While The Irishman is much more plot driven, but it's a slow burn plot all the way through. And if it says something, De Niro didn't even get nominated, but Pesci did and and everybody else did. So, I mean, I'm not trying to knock De Niro. De Niro is one of the best of all times. But, you know, something's got to be done. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's the Wild West. HBO's going to have a streaming service, and they're going to make their own movies that are not going to go to the big screen. They're going to go right to HBO app or whatever you want to call it, and that also begs the question. Now they're not showing movies on TV that have already made their way to the big screen. Now they're going to make their own, like Netflix, like Hulu, like Amazon Prime. You know, how do you, how do you govern this? Should it even be governed? There's Should also it? that too. But I think for us as viewers, 
it'd be nice if it could be because it there it's such a massive split where it is exclusive where you yeah. have to have a subscription to one or the other. I need to get this out there while I've still got it on my mind. Do this will be a good segue. Do you to think the next Larry part? David is a fan of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? That's that's what I started I thinking there, as you said. It's like a Seinfeld episode, like in terms of the pacing and everything. Yeah. But anyway, getting getting back to this, there's been such a huge split, one direction, then another, then another, then another, as far as streamable content and all these different streaming services, and they're creating their own content through it. But it's the exclusivity that comes with each one. Though you pay a fee for for just this one, can it even be regulated? I don't think it can. Maybe it should be in some ways because we as viewers, people are starting to finally catch on. Hey, there's way too much streaming stuff going on as far as I've got to choose this at the expense of this. And I think at some point we're going to come back full circle to a point where things are going to start to merge and all of a sudden, we've got a whole new kind of cable package that is a streamable one. You know, this you could that's go, just a guess. This but. is a rabbit hole you could tumble down forever in a month. You know, well, we're going to cut the cable and we're going to do streaming. Well, it sounds like you're going around about and you're kind of doing cable all over again, but you're not subscribing to one place for cable. You're subscribing to Hulu and Netflix. And yeah. da, 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 da. so it's a la carting all over again. And the exclusivity is, I agree, you know, for example, I'm a Star Trek fan. I I was watching Star Trek The Next Generation last night on streaming. Well, CBS All Access owns Star Trek, all of it now. That's going to, they finally remerged now. So Paramount and CBS are coming back together and they'll still work out some details. But that's where Star Trek is going to live. But there's still an existing contract with Netflix. You can still find that there. And I like that. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. So if I want to watch something, it's going to be all over the place. But it's starting out not to be that way. If you want to watch Cheers, let's say, you know, you're going to find that exclusively on CBS All Access. That's it. That's the only place you're going to find Cheers. Well, I don't want to subscribe to CBS. Well, then you're not watching Cheers. You know, and that's the problem. And that's one of the things I, I still have a love for actual physical media. I still have a shelf on the entire wall of DVDs because if I want to watch something in particular, I probably have it and I can watch it. Even if I don't subscribe to that service, I bought that disc on sale for five bucks. Now I can watch it whenever I want to. And that's a beauty for me. And that's something that's kind of lost. There's the catch 22 of. There's so many options out there. What are you going to watch? And there's actually been studies done where you'll go to, say, Hulu, and you're going to look up at everything they've got. I can't figure it out. And within the first seven minutes, if you can't figure out out of everything what you're going to watch, people will turn it off and go do something else. So in some ways – Fascinating. And there's a, and it breaks huh. – they've broken that down. Men will, will give it up faster than women will. Okay. And, and, and different ages will give it up faster or, or later than others. So in a way, you almost kind of need a focus. You know, how many times have you seen a movie that you weren't planning to watch, but you were flipping through the TV and there it was, huh? And you put the remote down and all of a sudden that's that's how Shawshank Redemption became so popular. Yes. So you yep. think about what's going to be lost in order to gain what we have and the exclusivity. I want to watch this particular show. It looks really good, but I don't want to subscribe to this whole thing just for this one thing. Oh, but there's so many other things. I don't care. I don't care. I don't want to subscribe to 95 different streamers because right. that's where it's going to go. And just to watch the one thing that I want to watch, I'm going to subscribe to a few and that's it. So things like Cheers or Frasier, it shouldn't just be in one place. It should be like everywhere. Hey, this is our show. People will subscribe to watch it. Yeah, but if you let Netflix have it also, they're going to pay you to put it on there 
And that way you can watch your favorite shows. The, the new stuff, the exclusivity, have a window. And then in five years, ten years, whatever, The Irishman is available on whatever streamers are out there. You want to pick it up? You want to broadcast it? Sure. Well, no problem. The decade represented a shift in some genres as yeah. well. We talked about this, too, um, coming in, that we've seen in particular comedy movies become more of a niche movie than maybe ever before. Um, we've, we've certainly talked about that with romantic comedies in the past, but even you could say that about comedies in general in this past decade have kind of become what horror films are now, where they are gap fillers, where they are appealing to a very specific audience. They don't have as much broad appeal as they seemingly used to have. Well, I don't know how much of that I'll agree with, but uh, what I would say is comedies almost should be on the side of a milk carton. You know, they just don't make them like they used to. Have you seen this movie genre? Yeah, well, who hasn't seen a comedy? But I was—I made a point not to look well, up on the internet. More so, missing in action. I'm, yeah, I mean, where where are these movies? There, I'm not saying they're not making comedies, but you know, they're making them a lot less than they used to. And I mean, in all across the board, not just romantic comedies, but many of them. And I made a point. Um, I'm not looking up on the internet 2010s comedies. Maybe you should. And I was thinking off the top of my head, what was a really, really good comedy? From the 2010s. Bridesmaids was back in 2011. Yeah. That I'm, was a pretty big one. I'm not saying that there aren't any. I'm not saying they don't make them. I've, obviously, they do. But I'm saying the numbers of which have gone way, way down. Yeah. And and part of it is, in this culture, you'd think nowadays, with everything going so sideways in the world and in the country, now you'd think we'd need a good laugh. But it also seems that, I th- I wonder if this is a component of it, we seem as a culture so prepared to be offended at the drop of a hat that- you know, that's what comedies kind of do best. They take something and poke a little fun at it. Well, what if that's a little sensitive for you? Plus, humor, I think, has become a little bit more mean-spirited. It can and be. mean-tempered as well. Think about the comedies that are out there. A lot of them have become R-rated yeah. comedies. And and I think a lot, a lot of people who watch comedies today, they kind of approach attempts at humor with their own mean-spirited kind of view of the world as well. Which, well, yeah, which I think plays a role. There, that's not all, but there's you could break down comedy into so many subgenres. You know, hard R's and and gross out comedies and zany and family comedies and romantic comedies and so on and so forth. They were on the gamut, or at least they used to back in the day. Um, I, I I don't have an answer for this, but I mean clearly the numbers are. Go look up you know number of comedy movies that came out in X random year. I'm willing to bet you're going to find a lot less in the more recent years, enough to the point where I'm just off the top of my head, what was a great comedy? I'm having a hard time thinking about them. And a movie like Bridesmaids, I laughed. I saw that movie. I saw it. I liked it. But it wasn't, you know, so over the top. You know, I like Judd Apatow, but Judd Apatow needs to learn how to edit, too, kind of like Martin Scorsese and The Irishman. Comedies, more than anything, benefit from pacing. And like uh, This is 40 or Knocked Up, they're good comedies, but that's a two-and-a-half-hour movie. you got to be kidding me. There's no way that movie should be longer than 90 minutes. End the, of story. Those are some of the last tentpole comedy movies that really do come to mind as well. Yeah, and those came out in the early part of the 2010s, but that's what they've really waned off since then. John Apatow is a great storyteller and a great comedian and all of that, but he needs to learn to edit. He needs to, you know, that's all funny 
But it's not about it's what's everything that's funny gets into the movie. Some of the best jokes don't make the final cut because that's a whole subplot that drags down the rest of the main story. It needs to go. Let's cut these things down. There's not one comedy in the world that should be longer than two hours. Another thing, too, Dave, is that a lot of comedic actors from the beginning of the decade have started to pivot to more of a dramatic yeah. kind of tone as well. We're seeing a lot of people going that route you you could name you know steve carell comes to mind he's one guy who has really started to make that switch seth rogan has kind of made that switch as well um kristen wig has definitely made that kind of change a lot of uh, a lot of actors are turning from a more comedic route and they're going give me more in the dramatic sense adam sandler is a guy who has done that too a guy who many people would have said what really just got snubbed for an oscar yeah yeah so that switch. Who is, would have thought I was going to say that? Adam Sandler got legitimately snubbed how about for an Oscar. That? What? Billy Madison? That? What? Yep. No. The, yeah. I, th- I think that's part of it, too. <laughs> Who's that next wave that's coming through? You know, Saturday Night Live is not churning out the the kind of mainstay comedic performers that it, that it used to, who were then getting their own vehicles for movies and getting their launch that way. Comedy's not producing people the way that it used to. That's what I'm saying, and I think in this era, more than any other time, we need to laugh. We need to we need to let go. Yeah. We need to depucker our butts and just learn to laugh, <laughs> even at things that are inappropriate, and even at things that uh, you know we we get so offended so fast and so easy. Sometimes it's so much better to just let go, relax, sit back, and let's watch this and laugh. Whether it's new, whether it's an old one, let's go throw on stripes. Bill Murray, why not? Great movie, funny, and let's just let life slip away for an hour and a half. But we can't because we always got our phone on our lap, and even when we're watching the movie, we're also looking at our feed on the blah 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 blah, and we don't unplug. I and, think comedies would help that. And people are getting offended in different ways than they used to in the past. It's not just a you know I don't like that brand of humor. It's hey. Your your brand of humor is down is degrading this this person or that person or that so now more people than ever are getting uptight or or getting angry about this or that um, for better or for worse. Oh yeah, um, and that's not to say that they don't have legitimate gripes, right? Um, but at some point, gotta let things go just a little bit, just even if it's for briefly, and let's use that as a tie-in to maybe I think that's our last subject for this. Is when the fans are displeased. I was about to go there. Yeah, that was that's been perfect. a big part of the. 2010s. Oh my goodness! It, it that has really come on big time over the last several years. And I don't just mean toxic fandom. I mean that's a subgenre of this. But you have time. I mean, this is where I said social network. That movie really speaks to this decade because it does. Anybody's got a megaphone now that they can blast out to the world that did not exist. It just straight up didn't exist. Yep. If you didn't like a movie, you got your Sharpie out and some tag board and you went and marched in front of your theater on your block or wherever it was, and that's it. People that drove by that theater might know that you were displeased. Now you can open up your own YouTube channel and everybody knows. That's how Star Wars survived the fan backlash from Phantom Menace. <laughs> you just kept on going. You know, there wasn't that I mean there was there was hubbub and there was talk at the water cooler there wasn't social media back then to to really. Oh my gosh, social media plus the Phantom Menace. What would that have looked like? But but Star Wars has not escaped that here at the end of at the end of the the 2010s with the fan backlash that came on on the the seven eight nine sequel trilogy, particularly the Last Jedi. I mean, and, and to a point where people's I don't like the movie. Okay, 
But it got to a whole other point where even the stars of the movie were being online bullied and and have gotten off. Daisy Ridley, you know, who plays Ray, she's off social media. She said, I don't need that. I'm done with it. I mean, when did that ever happen? Did Meryl Streep have to drop off chat, uh, Twitter because somebody was blasting your performance? You, got, you never thought that it would ever happen, but it has. And it's too bad because she seems genuinely cool. And, yeah. And, and just it's too bad that she's kind of had to go that route you know it's, and it was, she didn't write the movie and no one is docking her performance they may knock the character and she plays the character so mark hamill luke skywalker different people but are they really you know that i get that you know but it got to a point where you've got to be kidding me you know yeah getting on the filmmakers is one thing but then getting on the filmmakers come on guys it's a movie i mean even though i don't like some of the directions star wars has gone and that's a topic for another discussion um I, I will put some of the blame on the people that called those shots, whether it was the director, whether it was the executive producers that oversaw everything. Uh, yes, there's blame to go around, and legitimately so. But save it for them. Save it in a professional way rather than getting stupid about it and calling out those that had really nothing to do other than take what they were given and make the best out of it and then call them out and bully them to the point that they're, you know, Ahmed Best had come out and played Jar Jar Banks and said he was ready to jump off a bridge, literally, because of all the shaming. You know, little um, oh, Jake Lloyd, Lloyd yep. is in a psychiatric clinic, to yep. my understanding, right now. I mean, that may or may not have anything to do with the fan backlash, but it probably didn't help. It probably didn't. And it's a reminder, Dave, that that for fandom, there are limits. Yeah. There need to be limits, you know, from one end of the spectrum to the other, because that's kind of how it goes. It's a pendulum that swings very heavily one way or the other. People wonder why their celebrities live behind gates and walls. This, if they could exist in the social yeah. media realm too, there's a reason, and this is why. Because people go e- go even too crazy and over the top for things that they do like and appreciate, and they don't keep those things in proper perspective. And then for things that they don't enjoy or appreciate, that, and then when they feel it should be a certain way or it should be done this way or that way, it's it's proof that people are just never going to be fully pleased and mass. Um, even if you're going to get pretty close or try to get pretty close, you're just not going to be able to please everybody. Well, and Star Wars has really contended with that here lately. In fact, I mean, the best movie that they have done since since they came back, since Star Wars was revived with Disney here in this decade, was Rogue One, which has I think gotten an even better and more favorable opinion over time. I think Rogue One has steadily risen in in appreciation over the last few years, which I am really glad for. But it has come as other movies from Star Wars have failed in, in the eyes of people. Well even right now Rise of Skywalker is playing and it's getting, you know, better reviews. The box office is doing good, but it's not Star Wars where it should be, you know, and I, I've, I'll say I think it's a good movie. I was entertained. And I won't say it's a good movie. I say it was an entertaining movie, but a deeply flawed movie. And we can talk more about that later. Um, flaws that came from flaws, though. Yeah. I, would say. I mean, it's like getting, you know, Last Jedi cut all the threads off. So Episode Nine is trying to glue the hair back on. You know, it doesn't really work so well when you try to do that. Force Awakens is not excused from this either. No. It, it started this trail, I would say. It started it, but it, was, it wasn't it was a bad movie. It delivered what it was supposed to. And I don't want to go into a big sub-genre Star Wars thing here, but, you know, it was, it was about mismanagement. And you can look at this, not just Star Wars, but look at, say, the Terminator movies. Now, they just had Terminator Dark Fate come out, which was actually not a bad movie, but it more or less bombed at the box office. 
Was it just because Terminator Dark Fate was a movie that people didn't want to see, or was it that and the, the, the powers that be that had the rights to Terminator, hey, let's make another one. Yeah, but I don't want to make this movie. Yeah, but we're going to make it anyway. And trickle down from exactly. other movies that had not done well previously. Well, exactly. So say what you want about Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines. Personally, I thought it was a decent movie. It took some turns that I didn't expect. It's not T2, and you know it's not going to be. But I didn't stand up in the movie theater. Oh, this was the worst movie I've ever seen. It wasn't bad. The the one with the Christian Bale, not so good. Probably the least good of the bunch. Uh, Terminator Genesis, it was a nice attempt, but no, probably should have been rethought. But Dark Fate wasn't a bad movie. But people have been so burned by, no, no, this one will be a good Terminator movie. Ah, got you again. People didn't want to take a risk. They All the goodwill that had been with T2 had been burned off little by little I didn't with even each think of those. It got promoted very well, Dark Fate. I, I thought they could have promoted it a lot better with a better trailer, with more in terms of commercials and advertising. I think that hurt it, too. It should have been more of a slow burn, and they had, they had teasers out six months before the movie came out and, and posters and things. But, I mean, yeah, that probably could have helped, but... Um, you know, it, there's there's a long argument story to be made about this, but the you know the, the point being that the fans push back Ghostbusters. That's a big one that ties into toxic fandom, yeah, and into a misguided effort. You know, this is this is the movie that nobody people want a Ghostbusters three, and it sounds like they're going to get one here this summer. Uh, it's getting better word of mouth already, and it's not even out yet. Um, you know. This was a movie that really almost ignored everything that had come before. That's problem number one. Um, it was taking its own thing, and in a lot of ways, there's a very talented amount of group of people in there. The actresses, the the filmmakers, very talented, but it wasn't the funniest movie. Ghostbusters, the original one in particular, I mean, there's such a perfect sweet spot between being scared and being laughing, and it, it, it's like salty and sweet. They are opposites in a way, but they go together so well. And Ghostbusters does have some legitimate spooky you laugh moments. In fear, kind of. It has some <laughs> legitimate spooky moments, but God, that's a funny movie. Yeah, hold those moments that are comparable up to the reboot, if you whatever you want to call it. Ghostbusters answer the call. It just it isn't that funny of a movie. It just it kind of isn't. It's not bad. It just isn't great. But then it got to the point where the toxic fandom kicked in, but also those that were making the movie, and I'm talking like executives. If you don't like this movie, it's because you're sexist. What? Are you kidding me? I cannot like something just because it's not likable. You can't accurately critique the movie then. Yeah. Well, right. if I don't like it because of this legitimate... No, no, you're, you're sexist. I mean, there were some people who did approach it that way. Oh, I no agree. question about it. I agree. But you can't just shoehorn everybody then that way. You're going to create even more problems then. Yeah. If you don't like the new Star Wars prequels because Ray is the lead and Ray's a girl and you don't like girls. Wait, what? What? What are you talking about? No. Here's a legitimate concern here. Here's another concern. This could have been better if this. Now, every actress that was in that movie, they're funny. I love Kristen Wiig. I like Melissa McCarthy. I, they're, they're funny, all of them. Uh, Leslie Jones, you don't see much except when she was on SNL, and I think she could do some good things in her career now that she's off of SNL. I'd look forward to seeing what she'll she's do. She's on social media. She's on social media. Yeah. She, you know, She's funny. So given the right material, anyone can be funny. But look at Ghostbusters 2. It wasn't a great movie. The studio wanted to make it. Let's make it effects heavy. It wasn't as funny. It was made because, hey, let's make another one. But this new one that's coming, reserve judgment. You know, It looks to be continuing under the original timeline, so to speak. Uh, pretty much everyone's back in it, at least in a cameo. Will it be funny, though? 
remains to be seen. I, I can't answer that question yet. But I can critique Ghostbusters 2 and say that wasn't very funny. And I'm not being called out for being something worse than just somebody who had an issue with something. If Ghostbusters answered the call, it really wasn't that great a movie. It really wasn't that funny. But to dislike it means you're going to be pigeonholed with some real dark underbelly. I resent that. And that's you know an arguably legitimate reason to be mad. But then again, people like Leslie Jones, they got really reamed over social media in ways that were just right. ghastly. And there is absolutely that group that's there that should be called out. You know, people that do that, that's so wrong on so many levels. But I don't want to be lumped into that just because I didn't think the movie was very good. Right, nor should you. Nor should I. Because you're critiquing the movie itself. I went in there to be entertained. Not, I'm going to go in there and hate this movie no matter what. I wanted to be entertained by it, and I just... eh. Briefly turning the page and looking ahead to the 20s. Let's let's give some quick perceptions on on what we think is going to be coming. Two things stand out for me going into the new decade. What will the movie-going experience be like in the next 10 years? And what will be new in the next 10 years? What And what I mean by that is we are going to get inevitable remakes. We are going to get inevitable sequels. We are going to get inevitable continuations of franchises. What will be new in the midst of all of that? And also, what new ideas and concepts will continue to come in movies in this decade ahead? And will they be different than what we have experienced in the past in terms of what new is those are the two things that really stand out for me looking ahead to the 2020s and what's going to be coming with the movies are there things that you look toward in this new decade dave especially when we consider what has come previously i see not in all ways but in some ways echoes of the past the 1970s as a culture standpoint was kind of grim Look at a lot of the movies of the 70s. They were really grim and reality-based and not uppers. And then came Star Wars, and everything changed. And the 80s, whoa. The 80s was the candy equivalent of Starburst candy. Bright, colorful, flavorful. Hey! I have a feeling something, with the exception of you know the MCU, that's kind of what the 2010s were. They were kind of gritty and reality-based. And I know I said that on a decade that had the Avengers and everything. But grim. I think there's going to be a turnaround. Maybe comedies will make a bit of a resurgence in the 2020s. I think we need to laugh, and maybe that's coming out. Maybe. The other thing with streaming, like we kind of alluded to, I think it's going to become the Wild West before it starts to come into something that's more... Focused. uh, Focused, yeah. Um, Centralized. Yeah, I think it's going to be a Wild West where, you know, God, I don't know. I've got all these options. I don't know what the heck I'm going to do. You know, and... We talked about that before, but I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. And I don't know if worse is the right word to use, but it's going to get a little crazy before it starts to really work for us, if that makes sense. The other thing is I think that I hope this is a lesson that we're going to learn, but I would think I could repeat that for every decade. Don't just make movies to make them. Make them because you've got something legitimate to do. Star Wars was purchased by Lucasfilm. Hey, let's make a one every year, and it'll be great, and there'll be millions of Star Wars movies, and now look where we are. You know, in some cases, there was a lot of good reasons to make those movies, and in other ways, are you just making them to make them, and now you're starting to get that revolt. So come up with an idea, really make it work, and do it. And if you come up with an idea that you're not sure, I mean, I'd, I'd also like to see more smaller independent movies that aren't so grand. And have an avenue for those, even if they're just on streamers rather than on the big screen. Um, get some more of those, and I think we're starting to see that happen now. I, you know, and exactly where we're going to go, I don't know. 
but I think it's uh, it's going to be surprising. And if we're still doing Rick and Nick in 20 years, or 10 years, 2030 could be an interesting look back on the 2020s. I, I, I don't know what's going to come. Hopefully a step up. Hopefully continued creativity. Yeah. That's that's the big thing that st- continues to stand out for me is what uh, and again that's why I said what's going to be new. What will you create that's new? What will you do that's going to reinvent the wheel? I had spoken about how James Bond, they reinvented the wheel with Skyfall in a new did a way great this, job. this past decade and did great with it. You know, I look ahead to this this year that's ahead. Um, yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to No Time to Die. That that's one that I've got circled. I'm looking forward to Wonder Woman 1984. But I'm really looking forward to Tenet. Yeah. You know, a movie like that, something that is new, that's different from a director who likes to do new and different. Um, that looks like it's going to be that kind of, of thinking. Are we going to get a horror movie that finds that niche in a way that um, that maybe something like Get Out did last decade, that, that finds something new and different to be able to run with? Keep your eye um, on The Invisible Man to answer that question. This looks very, very interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. An interesting play off of an old idea. Tied into tied into a modern cultural thing with the Me Too movement because it really is. It's about abuse, right? With a twist on an old 1930s universal horror movie monster mished together in a way that I think could really be, it could be lightning in a bottle. Can comedy find its own version of Get Out or its own version of It for the horror movies? Um, and and with what those were as far as like, you know, big time standalone creative movies i mean it was based off of something pre uh, previously done with a book and yet at the same time still found its own niche when it came to the way that they put it on the on the screen and it did so very successfully can comedy do that this decade how will the action film continue to evolve in this decade are we going to find a, a touchstone action movie that is going to provide something new within that genre are we going to see a different kind of superhero movie than what we have seen in the past that's going to give us something a little bit different there. All those questions kind of swirl around in my mind, but that's the great excitement of the unknown. We've got a vast canvas that's out there ahead in in the coming decade of movies. I hope it's a canvas that we will continue to see on the big screen in particular. Yeah, and that's one thing I'd be very interested to see the state of theaters when we come to 2030, 10 years from now. Are they becoming? Are they starting to close down? And there's still a select area, few where they're still going, but streamers have clearly taken over. I really hope not. I think in some cases it's like, can I buy dog food from the big box store, or can I go to the local pet store and support local? That's part of it. It's a social experience too. That's part of it, but you know the social experience of it too. I miss the midnight showings. I miss Me going too. to a show Absolutely. in my. I miss going in my jammies, knowing because this movie won't get over till two or three in the morning. You know, going on a Friday night where I can... There was a brilliant expectation that came with that. Yeah. Now midnight movies are Thursdays at 6 o'clock, you know, before the big Friday opening. You know, that's it's awesome. It just isn't the same thing. Because everybody that was there was really giddy. How many times do you get people to go to a show that starts at 12.01? You don't get people that are dragged there. Everybody there wants to see it. You don't get kids, hey, my mommy, what the... You know, if they're there, they're going to really want to see the movie. Well, I know. Something special is I, lost. I know what happened during the Dark Knight Rises yeah. in, in Colorado, that shooting there. I think that had a piece, a big piece. Yeah, I do too. In in that whole change that came with that. But 
I do miss the midnight showing experience. And that's one of those I, I agree with a line from the 2000s. If you don't do this, then the terrorists win. You know, I'm not going to not live just because something might happen. I'm not going to say, if I'm going to go jump out of an airplane, I know what the risks are, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to not do it, you know, if I decide to do that kind of thing. If I want to go to a movie theater at any point, granted, my one of my big movie partners that I go see a lot is a cop, and he's carrying at all times because he's a cop. So I'm, I can feel his sidearm bunching into my hip sometimes during a movie. And I, I won't say that that doesn't flash into my mind. I was like, well, if somebody does burst in here, at least I've got armed escort. But still, that's not what I want to go to a movie and think about. You know, you could go to the movie and not even get to the theater and get hit by a bus. You know, you can't not live because something that might happen or because of something that one time did happen. Take precautions to prevent it from happening again. But something has been lost. You know, so you trade something away in order to, and where are you? Are you better off than you were before? Mm-hmm. Maybe in some ways, could it still happen? You darn well tootin' it could, unfortunately. But I don't want to not live. I'll still go swimming in the ocean even though I might get eaten by a shark. It's a social experience. Yeah. Going to the movies and going to the theater. And that's why we're glad to be sponsored by a theater with the Bemidji Theater, located on Highway 2, just down from the airport. $5 movie nights on Tuesdays. Go check it out. And now $6 student nights as well on Thursdays, Dave. Bring your ID, valid ID, student. Doesn't matter. If you are a student, don't try to do the I'm a student of life unless you like being laughed at. <laughs> no, really. You get a regular ticket. No, you would be paying this much. So, yeah, go check them out. Between $5 Tuesdays, which at the night we're recording this is tonight, Yep. $6 students, and uh, third Saturday of every month they've got, for those that are on the spectrum, uh, the lights are turned up, the volume is turned down, so autism or anything like that can be a little overwhelming in a theater. Third, th- third Saturday of every month they will have a, call it a special screening. Excellent. Into the new decade we go, my friend. I'm very much looking forward to what we are going to get at the movies in this next decade. You know, it's funny, 1917 came out very, 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 very late. I think it was Christmas Day of 2019, isn't that when it came out? A very limited select release. theaters, yep. So technically it's a 2019 movie, but it really kind of went wide in 2020. In some ways, kind of the same thing Avatar did in 2009. It really came big in 2010. In, in a way, will that kind of be the first big movie of the 2020s, even though it's a 2019 movie? You know, I wonder what, what, what would be the first shot across the bow? For the 2020s. Ooh. 20, 1917? I think it was. There's a debate. In some respects, yep. We'll see how things go then with the Oscars. Yeah, that. that'll be interesting. We'll probably have something to say in the next podcast when the Oscars have been said and done. Indeed. I'm going for them best picture. That is by far. Yeah. I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Dave Brooks. And we will see you at, at the, the movies. movies.